Exceeding in Expectations, Episode 69. Have you ever thought about getting a coach or would you know how to go about finding the right coach and are you coachable? All those topics and many more are discussed in this week's episode with Mark Green, who, who coaches CEOs and executives all around the world. Welcome to the podcast where we aim to give you ideas of how you can give your customers a fantastic experience, one which was went far beyond what they expected and results in you getting better referrals and testimonials. Please do leave a review for us on iTunes. Um, Why not subscribe to the podcast? And it would be great if you could share this episode with someone who you feel could get some benefit, anyone you know who's maybe thinking about coaching, um, just wants to know more about that sort of thing, it would be great if you could share that with them. And now for this week's episode. Exceeding expectations, my guest today is Mark Green. How are you, Mark? Hey, Tony, I'm great today. Thank you. And you're in the Big Apple? Uh, I am. I am slightly outside of, I'm on the skin of the Big Apple uh, in, <laughs> in New Jersey, just, just within the New York metropolitan area, yes. And is that, is that where you're from? Uh, yeah, I grew up just north of New York City in a little town called Chappaqua, New York, about 55 minutes to the north of Manhattan. And so what I, I know you're a coach, Mark. Do you want to tell us what it is that you do? Yeah, I'm, I'm a leadership and business growth coach. I work with CEOs and their executive teams running high-growth mid-market firms uh, to help them essentially get out of their own way and put the things in place so that they can continue to scale those businesses. And mm-hmm. to give you an idea of scope, my, my clients are cut across industries, so I'm, I'm industry agnostic. And right now, my portfolio runs from about 20 million U.S. turnover on the low end to 400 million uh, turnover on the high end. And how did this come about? How did you get into coaching? So I I launched my own business back in 2003, initially as a leadership development training company. And that was my first foray into wanting to do my own thing. And... um, it evolved really on about a 36-month cycle over over the years, and I reached a point in in that business where uh, my I, I wasn't I was working too hard and not earning enough, and and the only way for me to earn more was to actually work harder, and that didn't make sense to me, and mm-hmm. so I um, I basically stepped out and said, all right, how how can I become credible in the middle market, um, and what's the right set of tools that I need to make that happen. Um, long story short, I, I affiliated with a, a global coaching organization, um, got some new tools, and, and was able to go out and launch my practice in its current form in about 2009. And from, from then, it's been uh, off to the races. And now I'm, I'm actually one of the leaders in, in this global coaching organization. Um, I train and mentor coaches worldwide. Um, I maintain a very stable client portfolio. And uh, just last year, uh, published my first, well, actually, I should say last year, at the end of 2018, published my first book. Uh, and I have a second book on the way that's dropping in January of 2020. Um, and I'm moving in a direction of more thought leadership and um, and speaking, which is kind of my next chapter. Well, there's lots to explore there. So let's start off with what, what was it that drew you to coaching in the first place? Why? How did you get into it? So it's interesting. I, I I, um, it wasn't a straight line, as is, I think, usually the case. But as I look back in hindsight, uh, if you turn the clock all the way back, let's say, to Mark in high school, 
Mm. Mark was the guy who everybody always talked to. And I mm. was the guy who didn't only belong to one or two or three cliques in, in high school groups, but I, mm. I cut across all of the groups. Um, and I always found it interesting to listen to people and to engage with people. And at the time, of course, I thought nothing of it and went away to university and started working and, you know, was on a management track and all of that kind of thing. And, um, you know, it really wasn't until I decided, you know what, I've had enough working for other people. Let me step back and do my own thing that the concept of leadership development came to me. But even that wasn't really coaching in its first iteration. It was more a training firm. Um, so, you know, uh, that format and, um, and that business then evolved into being able to be delivered in a coaching format. And interestingly, uh, the coaching I do today is one to many, not one on one primarily. Um, so I, I, I'm in the, I'm in the boardroom with the, ex- the CEO and, and the executive team. And, uh, and that's the, the team that I coach, uh, as a part of how I work my business today. And so from, it sounds like, you know, you've been coaching a long time. What would you say, uh, are there any general attributes that are required to, to be a good coach? Uh, there, there are, uh, there are. And, and most people like me who I, who I know have to learn it through the school of hard knocks. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And, and a lot of it, and this will come as no surprise is you, you just, you have to get out of your own head. You know, and that's a that's a big issue because you, you can't be other focused. You can't mm. listen and really hear what people are saying or read between the lines. And you absolutely cannot say the things that must be said that you mm. know people do not want to hear, but they have to hear. You mm. cannot do any of those three things if you are in your own head. And I was victim to this for years, and it's fascinating because even after 2009, I, was, I still had a, some fear around being able to say the right thing, feeling somewhat inferior to the, to the CEOs and the clients who I was working with at the time. Um, you know, there's all kinds of stuff that goes on in our heads, and it wasn't until I figured that out, and it was about eh, 2011, I think, when, when, the, when it really came together for me that that was literally the the hockey stick uptick in in my in my practice and and uh, mm-hmm. like a rocket ship literally at that point um and and that then sparked my interest in um what is it that goes on in our minds that prevents us from doing what we know we should be doing and i started mm-hmm. working with other colleague coaches on these same things because everybody had the same problem and then I started seeing it in my clients as well, in their businesses and in their leadership. And, and that's the path that led me to write my first book, Activators, uh, because mm-hmm. Activators is about the three hidden growth killers that prevent us from enacting pretty much what we know we need to be doing and we already know how to do it, but we're just not doing it. So let's explore that then. What are those three, three things? So uh, the three hidden growth killers are our motivators, our habits, and our beliefs. And mm-hmm. um, we, could, uh, we could unpack each of those in about a day's worth of content, just FYI. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the idea is that um, we're, we're, as animals, we're motivated by fear or, or love, essentially. We, we either want more of something or want less of something. 
Um, and that operates below our conscious level and has a profound impact on uh, how our brains work and how we make choices and how we take actions. Um, our habit as well, uh, their, their uh, habitual responses to things and not just uh, habits of doing like brushing your teeth or tying your shoes, but habits of thinking uh, which get into assumptions and presuppositions and all of those things that we don't even recognize are occurring um, like this idea of when you meet someone for the for very first time and you instantly have an impression of them, um, that, that, mm. that doesn't come from them. That comes from your making up a story in your brain based on a, a pattern of prior experience, and that's actually a habit. Okay? Mm. Now, that may serve you or it may not serve you, but knowing the difference is pretty important. Okay? Mm. And then the third is beliefs, and we have... Um, a set of beliefs relative to our past, to our present, and to our future. And, and again, at each of those, the research is pretty clear that there are, are ways that those, our, our interactions with our beliefs can help us, and there are ways that they can also get in our way. And, um, and so I, I unpacked all this in the book and created a series of eight activators and a series of tools to help business leaders essentially be able to bypass these things without necessarily needing to get into all the science behind it. And since you had those breakthroughs and you know you, re- you had those kind of realizations, what how was the how has it changed for the results you get for your clients from before and after? Oh, it's it's dramatic. It's it's been dramatic. I I have a gift of uh, of intuition. Um, I just feel, I'm able to see patterns in things and I'm able to, to put pieces, disparate pieces together to come to a conclusion. And I had a set of fears in the early days that prevented me from articulating what was really occurring to me at any moment in time with a client. And, um, and it was like, you know, naming the elephant in the room or saying, Hey, but if we put this, this and this together, don't we get that? And isn't that what we should be talking about? And it was when I was able to start doing that and start going toe-to-toe with business leaders I was coaching um, to help them see the things that I knew they needed to see but that they didn't want to admit but that, but that was really going to change their game. That was the game changer. That was the game changer. And, you know, for me to realize that it was less about wanting to be liked and, and a popularity contest and more about... Um, being being respected <clears throat> and it doesn't mean you're right all the time i just had this conversation with a client yesterday um you know i'm i'm wrong plenty of the time but i'm right enough that it far outweighs the amount of times i'm wrong and um and i'm good with that because that's what allows me to be most effective for my clients and when you started, well, confronting is not the right word, but when you started sort of bringing these things up to clients who probably maybe weren't so happy to hear those sort of things, how, how were the reactions? So it's, it's interesting. The, the reactions were, were actually quite favorable. This is one of those things where, you know, in your mind you build it up, of course, like it's going to be this awful thing, and then you have it, and, and it's like, oh, wow, that was actually mm. like really pretty darn good. Uh, and mm. what I've also done since then is I've incorporated it into how I screen a prospective CEO client today. 
And so mm-hmm. my, my practice is fairly stable. So I only turn over maybe one or two client slots per year. So it's not like I'm, I'm doing this constantly. But when I screen a CEO uh, as a prospective client, uh, I am very, it's kind of interesting because on the one hand, it's my sales process, um, but, but I'm very in their face. Um, and con- confrontational with them, not not in a not in a in a crummy, uh, not in that kind of a way, but or, or a jerky way, but in um, but in in a caring way, but saying what needs to be said and calling them on the carpet or saying, you know, on the one hand I hear you say this, but on the other hand I hear you say that. Those two things can't coexist. So which is it? And what I've discovered mm-hmm. is that um, in many cases nobody has ever talked to these people this way, and the right ones love it because it's missing for them. Like they're surrounded yeah. by people who just nod their heads, you know? Um, mm. and, uh, and, and those are my best, those are my best clients. So, so I've actually started using it to screen today. Um, and it makes for much more productive relationships. Well, and, and that's why they're going to a coach in the first place, I would imagine. Really. You, you bet. You bet. Al- mm. Although people aren't even clear on that because there's this mm. element of, well, um, we need to fix the team, right? Mm. But but the CEO's not saying, I need to fix me so that we can mm. fix the team, um, which is actually the correct order of events 100% of the time. And because if a, if a CEO has that kind of awareness that they're not perfect and that they, are, they do have issues they can work on, it's going to make such a difference to the results they get. S- self-awareness is fundamental to being coachable. That's mm. your... That's that's your that's my quote. You asked me before. Do I have any quotes? Self awareness is fundamental to being coachable uh, because and, and and an ability, a willingness, and ability to take action is also fundamental to being coachable. And those are things I test for uh, upfront. Um, ab- absolutely. So when you do those tests that you mentioned, so if someone didn't pass the test, you know, they, they it seemed that they weren't very self aware, they weren't receptive to being critiqued. Do you just don't take them on? Yeah, I, I might refer them to a different type of coach or professional who I know is a better fit for them, uh, or mm-hmm. I will just not take them on. I, I recall, so I'll tell you a quick story. I had a conversation a number of years ago with a, with a CEO uh, who was running a very well-known private jet company here in the United States, mm-hmm. Okay, uh, based on the western half of the United States. And uh, I was referred to her by one of her direct reports, who's a leader who I had worked with at a prior at a prior client. And I had a phone call with this woman, and all the way through the phone call, she just kept pointing to her team as the problem. Her team is the problem. Her team is the problem, and um, and just would not own any accountability for the state of affairs. And and mind you, by the way, the, the all, you got to realize all the people I talk to, these are not. CEOs running failing companies. These are already successful mm. by any measure, like people. Yeah. Um, but their but their success is still is suboptimized because of how they're showing up. And there's 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 still things they want that they don't have, and there's potential growth and all of that. And that's what this is after abundance, not uh, not avoiding uh, anything bad, right? And we got mm. through the phone conversation with the CEO, and uh, and I and I said, so it doesn't sound like um, you really need any of my help then? And she, she agreed with me. She's like, yeah, I, I guess we're not. I said, great. Well, I, I wish you a lot of success. 
You know, whereas a, another coach or somebody else might have been trying more desperately to to um, to show her how she needs to be helped, or to 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 you know to to push that on her. But for me, it's 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 not required because if if there's no ownership of that, I I, I call it being at cause versus being at effect. You know, when you're at effect, you're you're essentially a, a victim of other of other other characters, other actors, right? Whereas if you're at cause, you're standing there saying, hey, I, I am playing a part in this and my choices and my behaviors are affecting what's my results. Therefore, I must change those things to change my results. Um, and, uh, and by the way, that's part and parcel to what I, what I call self-awareness and, and being coachable. So going back to the book, you, you mentioned, so the book came out, when was it last year? Yeah, it was October of eighteen. And, and what was the reaction like to the book? The reaction was great because there's been a lot of academic work done on this topic of uh, how our thinking gets in our way, um, but nothing that was written as like an operating handbook for uh, the business mind. And um, so it's not a giant book, uh, and there are tools along the way that are sort of easy to use and practical um, to help us sort of get out of our, get out of our own way. Um, for example, one tool is uh, the fear reduction tool, and it's when you have fear around a decision or, ta- or taking some sort of an action. Think about maybe having a challenging conversation with a key customer, right? And that's something that you might rightly have some fear around. Well, you pull out the fear, uh, the reduce fear tool, and um, you, you work your way through it. And for most people, they don't even get through the whole tool before they realize uh, that there's not a lot of basis for their fear and they just go ahead and do what they need to do. And, and the, so the tool, again, has all of the science built into it, but without the person using the tool needing to understand the science to use the tool. And so what was your original objectives, objective for the book and, and where they met? So the original objective for the book was to begin to position myself as a thought leader and to begin to broaden my impact beyond my own client portfolio um, and use it essentially as a lever to start to figure out uh, how, to, how to go out and do more speaking. And I'm still in the process of, of figuring that out. Um, and I've been doing more of it for sure. Um, but it's just the beginnings of a platform for me that again, is going to be my next chapter. And I do expect in 2020, um, I am going to be doing quite a bit more speaking than I did, uh, than I did this year. Well, before we were talking about, um, you you talking about how you structure your engagements. Do you want to tell us about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so there, there are some things that I do very deliberately to structure my engagements to make me feel different to a client. And this gets back to this idea of expectations that I know you're, uh, you're very keen on. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and so um, this, this is kind of in that zone of you can design uh, a relationship such that expectations are exceeded as opposed to having to do superhuman things to exceed expectations in a different kind of a relationship, right? And so I choose to design yeah. the relationship this way. Uh, and for example, um, so I'm a, I'm a coach, I'm a, I'm a solo practitioner, um, and so I am my own product effectively for my clients. But what I, mm. what I do is 
I, I try to create an element of scarcity that causes my clients to disproportionately value their access to me. And two of the ways that I do this are I have a guarantee in my agreement, in my client agreement. And by the way, there's very few coaches on the planet that offer a, some form of a money-back guarantee or you only pay what you think it's worth if you didn't get the real value for this thing. Um, and, and what that does is it causes two things to happen. The first thing is it, it reduces the perceived risk of engaging me right? Which, by the way, supports premium fees because there's lower risk. And what, what it also does is it causes them to think again, like, wait a minute, there are very few coaches who offer a guarantee, yet this guy offers a guarantee. Boy, he must actually be pretty darn good. Hmm. And, and so it creates what I want to create in the CEO's mind before they even agree to start working with me, right? And the other thing that I do in my agreement is, uh, so again, I meet with the executive team as a team, and my clients only see me once a month. That's my rhythm with my clients. And uh, some it's once a quarter. Most it's, it's once a month. Um, but I also have an open-door policy. And, and this then is a little surprising to them. Uh, and the open-door policy says, look, anyone who's on the executive team who's in the room with us has access to me via email or phone um, for quick sort of coaching interactions anytime they need me. Mm. Okay? And so on the one hand, I'm, I'm creating the scarcity, and on the other hand, I'm, I'm giving them access. And what I've found historically is very few executives use the open-door policy. Um, when they do, it's very appropriate. They're short conversations but super high-value. So, so they, get, mm-hmm. they get what they need. And what that does is it even further reinforces the fact that, like, they think, like, wait, wow, I actually, like, I called Mark, and he got back to me in 30 minutes, and, and, the, and like, mm-hmm. unscheduled, and we had a five-minute conversation, and he gave me exactly what he needed. And that's the mechanism of, of exceeding expectations, okay, by giving them that access and, and by them not kind of seeing behind the curtain how the rest of my model works that actually makes me available to them like that. Mm. And, and so how did that come about? What was it that made you implement that? Uh, you, you know, I, so, so I'm surrounded by a lot of really smart people. Mm. I've always, I've, I, again, since this growth inflection in about 2009, I, I, I really have been surrounded by some very, very smart people. And, and uh, interestingly, the Change Your Neighborhood tool in Activators is exactly aimed at this, is making sure you're surrounded by people way better than you, uh, because they, mm-hmm. they also help you get out of your head. And, um, yeah. and so these things came from um, conversations and other people and other coaches I know <clears throat> who have thought some of these things through, and then eventually I kind of made it, made it my own and put, put the pieces together the way I wanted to. Um, and it's evolved, mm. uh, it's evolved quite nicely. What do you, do you think your clients or your prospective clients mis- misunderstand about what you do? I would say there's, there's two things that come up pretty, pretty regularly. One, one mm. is that the, the, there is a misconception or a blind spot around the true cost of tolerating the wrong person on your team. And, and I see this really, really commonly 
And it's this idea that, you know, well, this, this person's been with us forever. They're a top producer, but they're a cultural wrecking ball. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and it's like, yeah, that's the person that's got to go like not next week, but tomorrow. And, and mm-hmm. yet the leaders don't think about those things because we are the way, again, back to how our brain works. We, we were beautiful at rationalizing and making up stories. Um, and all the stories about all the bad things that will happen without putting any weight to the collateral damage that this person is doing and the price we're actually paying today to keep them here. Um, and I've seen this pattern play out over and over again. And so this is a conversation I have again at the screening point <clears throat> with a new client um, around um, really being rigorous around their team and kind of getting a gut feel for them as to um, what they are or aren't prepared to do if it turns out that they've got some of the wrong people on the bus. Um, and uh, it, it, it's, uh, I will tell you that virtually every client that I've engaged with since I've been doing this, so this is a very sweeping statement I'm about to make, within the first 18 mm. months of my engagement, at least one person who started on the senior team was no longer on the senior team. That's how indem- that's how mm. how much of an epidemic this tolerating of of underperformers is, um, mm. and and I still have clients. I mean, just this week, I'm, I, I met with a couple of clients I've been working with for years, <clears throat> and to some degree, they still have this issue, and I still have to push these buttons. Um, it's never ending. Mm. It's a it's a never ending battle. So that's a big one. The other one, which is kind of interesting, is nobody knows how to hire a coach. And, um, and it's, you know, you, you're, you're out there running your own business. You know how to run your business and make your decisions. But very few people have, have hired coaches multiple times. So you don't understand how to do it. You don't understand what questions to ask. Um, you don't understand what qualifications to look for or any of that. Um, and, I, and I realized this once a number of years ago. I actually wrote an article. It's on my website. It's called How to Hire a Coach. Um, and, and it's not even about me. It's just like the CEO's guide to what you need to think about. And some of the things are, um, you know, does the coach, is the coach committed to continuing education? And how many hours or days of education um, has that coach self-funded for themselves in the past year or two years? And by the way, what are the kinds of things they're learning and why? Um, does the coach, I call it eat their own dog food. Do they practice what they preach? Do they have a coach? <laughs> right? Because mm-hmm. like if, if I'm sitting here saying, hey, Tony, boy, you really need to hire a coach. And you say, so, mm-hmm. Mark, when's the last time you, you, uh, uh, you spoke to your coach? And I couldn't answer the, mm-hmm. the question. Right? Mm-hmm. Well, wait a minute. I'm, I'm, a bit, I'm a bit of a fraud then, aren't I? Right? Um, mm-hmm. Another one. Are you prepared to offer a guarantee? Right? Mm-hmm. Why, why or why not? You know, mm-hmm. um, and uh, uh, oh, and then the last one is is this, and this is pretty important. This gets back to this idea of um, pushing people uh, to the point of discomfort, right? Um, y- there's a misconception that a CEO has to have a good feeling about the fit of a coach, right? But the question mm-hmm. is, well, what does good fit mean for a coach? Like, does it mean that you feel all warm and fuzzy and cared for? Or does it mean that, that you know the coach cares deeply, but they actually make you feel uncomfortable? Because mm-hmm. isn't that why you're hiring a coach? And, so, and mm-hmm. so oftentimes the criteria for fit are, are misapplied 
Um, and I'll find this when I meet a team uh, sometimes because sometimes the CEO will say, wow, I want to hire you, but I need you to come meet my team first. And I'll say to the CEO, look, am I meeting your team because you're going to hire me and you want me to meet the team? Or am I meeting your team because you're going to ask them for feedback as to whether you should hire me? Because if you ask them for feedback as to whether you hire me and I do what I'm supposed to do in front of your team, there are going to be several of them that don't want you to hire me because I am threatening them. <laughs> I'm putting, I'm making them uncomfortable. Okay. But that's why you want me here. Um, and so I actually inoculate the CEO prior to seeing the team. But again, these are criteria around what you really should be looking for to hire a coach. If you're serious about committing to the process um, and, uh, and improving yourself and getting a practitioner who is capable, qualified, and has integrity with their own process and their own beliefs. Hmm. Would you say there are many um, people at that kind of level, at the sort of CEO level, who don't have a coach? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. You know, here's the thing. Uh, we looked at this a couple of years ago. Do you know that in the United States, there is more of a required continuing education requirement for a mortician, for a funeral director, than there is for mm -hmm. a coach. Okay? Wow. So there's a reason that attorneys and physicians, okay, and even, by the way, hairstylists, again, there's another one in the United States, hairstylists and morticians all have a required mm -hmm. continuing education requirement so they can be licensed to practice. In the United States, that mm -hmm. number for a coach is zero. So there is a very, very low barrier to entry, um, and there are plenty of people who hang out a shingle and want to become a coach. Uh, and so there is a lot of noise in the space, for sure, and I think that's a part of the reason why people struggle. And I've also run into a situation where people have been bitten before. Um, they've hired a coach that was really a bit of a train wreck, and so they're, they're gun-shy, right, for the, for the second round or trying to do it again. Um, and I have multiple clients where uh, I am the second or third coach that they've worked with. And, um, and I typically get back from them, like, literally after the first lunch, uh, first month or first meeting we have. Um, wow. This, now I understand. Like, now I get, get it. Now I get what the difference is. You mentioned that you only take on, you know, one or two people or I forget the number, but... Is it, do most people require a coach on a long-term basis or is it just something sort of temporary to get them through a particular phase? So it's a philosophical question, Tony. Um, I'm a believer that my role and the focus of my practice is to serve as the chief bar raiser for my clients, okay? And the implication mm -hmm. is if the client is ever wanting to say, okay, you know what, we're done growing, like we're good with the status mm -hmm. quo, that's when I'm ready to be done with them. But, but it's like the way it works is we achieve a milestone, we celebrate it, and then I turn around and say, hey, this is great. Now, here's what's next. And I raise the bar. 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 Because there is always something to be learning and, and, and doing as a leader and as a team um, that is, you know, virtuous for, for the business. And so my view, and I tell my clients this up front, is to, to be working with you um, for a very, very long time, um, but to have that relationship be based on an exchange of value. 
Um, although I only require a one-year commitment at a time. And that's intentional because every year I want my clients to, to um, deliberately opt back in to another year with me. I never want to presume it. I want, I want that to be a deliberate choice every year because it's an affirmation of the value and it's an affirmation of their commitment to the process. What, what do you feel, feel about the use of um, transparency in, in, you know, when you're communicating with clients? So I'm a big fan of transparency, and it's a, it's a hot button of mine um, that I've, uh, I've used to help a bunch of different clients change how they communicate with their clients. Uh, and I, I'm very transparent as well. It, it, even when, when I'm talking with a CEO I've never met for the first time, I'll, I'll tell them anything they want to hear. I'll answer any question. I'll introduce them to any client of mine, um, any, any of those things. I'm, I'm an open book. Uh, but a couple of examples I'll give you, uh, particularly around transparency and client communications that I feel very passionately about. Um, and a couple of examples that come to mind are a, a general contractor client that, I, that I've worked with and a restaurant client that's a, that's a current client of mine, um, where we changed the level of transparency that they use when they're communicating with their customers, um, particularly when, when things aren't right. Um, and so in the general contractor, for example, we actually had them put a communication rhythm in place with their clients over the course of the engagement. So they weren't just meeting with the, with the and this is a company that did very, very high-end interior renovations in Manhattan. Okay, so these are big ticket mm-hmm. items, high profile clientele with very high expectations. And we had them put in a weekly meeting rhythm so that every week there was a meeting with the client, no matter what was happening in the relationship. And what it did was it really put people at ease because if you've ever hired a contractor before, um, you know, the biggest concern of the customer is I don't want to get screwed. And then the next concern mm-hmm. is, am I going to get what I want? Right. Um, and so the contractor, no matter who you are, have to overcome, am I going to get screwed? And then the best way to do that was through this transparent communication. Um, and in the restaurant, it's a little different because um, think about like when you go to the doctor or the dentist and you're sitting in the waiting room and they're behind schedule. There's, there's, mm-hmm. there's no transparency there, right? Unless you have a remarkable mm-hmm. doctor or dentist, there's no transparency there. And it's infuriating, right? Yeah. It's infuriating. Uh, and you do the math in your head, like, wait, my time's worth more than their time, and this is horrible, and, you know, should I leave, should I stay, and this whole thing. So at the, at the restaurant, um, we, we had them start to be much more transparent with, with the customers, uh, and uh, so if there was a wait or something was behind schedule, um, they'll, they'll, they'll pour the client um, a, a complimentary drink, um, and they'll disclose with full transparency the reason why, um, and, uh, and it helps a lot because it's like, you, mm. it doesn't always have to be good news. Like good news or bad news doesn't mm. matter. It's just news, but knowing versus not mm. knowing is what makes the difference. Not whether it's pl- positive yeah. or minus. Yeah. It's, it's actually, yeah. When people are informed, then they're going to be more, less likely to complain because at least they know what's happening. Exactly. You bet. And so I'm a, I'm a big fan of transparency. I'm, I'm also a big fan of transparency in organizations in terms of open book management, 
um, and uh, you know, communicating results and financial results and all of that because you know, if you've got all these people in your business whose efforts every day essentially somehow tie into your balance sheet and your P&L and the results of the business, mm-hmm. and yet they come to work every day and have no idea what that linkage is or how what they do actually ties into those results, um, well, then whose fault is it if, if people aren't doing exactly what we need them to do the way we need them to do it to drive our results? It's the leader's fault because mm-hmm. we're, we're, not, we're not explaining that to them. And so uh, I have a number of clients who, uh, who have embarked on financial literacy projects with their employees uh, to, to educate them um, around how the business actually functions financially so that they can be explicitly aware of how their day-to-day ties into the, the driving of either gross profit or net profit um, in the business or even um, items that, that drive a, a more favorable balance sheet. Hmm. You, you were telling me before about you received some, an amazing experience with um, Uniscar. Unicruise, sorry. There's, a, uh, there's an amazing little cruise line based in Seattle, Washington, here in the United States, called UnCruise. And they are a small ship eco-adventure cruise line. And my wife and I have traveled with them twice so far. And in fact, we're leaving <clears throat> in a week uh, for another trip with them, uh, with all three of my boys. And um, the largest ship in their fleet is 84 passengers. And I think the smallest ship in their fleet is maybe 16 or 20 passengers. And um, they yeah. do all these super interesting itineraries. But this is an amazing experience because um, the, um, the, everybody on board, you, you, just, you just know that a company does an amazing job with their people when you show up and everyone who you meet is remarkable. And, and this is from the captain of the ship to the bartender, to the waiters and waitresses, to the room stewards, to the adventure guides. Um, it's a remarkable experience. And what they do is they curate this experience like you're almost on a private yacht, even to the point where the bridge of the ship is an open bridge. So you can walk up onto the bridge and hang out with the captain. Um, and um, we, we were in Hawaii in January of this year, and on, um, on the last night, the captain came down with his guitar and everybody had a sing-along. Um, mm. And um, oh, and one of the other things they have baked into their model, which is quite remarkable, is um, there's a masseuse on board every ship. Now think about it. These are not large mm. cruise liners, right? These are small ships. Mm. And, and everybody, just as a part of their uh, cruise fare, everybody gets a, a, a massage mm. during the week. So it's an amazing experience in amazing destinations that's fueled by amazing people. And they really have the model figured out. Um, And I guess it's another example, kind of like my own story, Tony, about where you can build the model to exceed the expectations. You don't have to take a regular old model and then do all the superhuman stuff to exceed expectations. And it's, it's so much more sustainable, right? Um, and it's, frankly, it's a lot more fun and interesting to be a part of that and getting it right at the model level <clears throat> than, uh, than having to go through all these hoops to make extraordinary happen for mm-hmm. people. 
cruise liners, typically people think of cruise liners as, you know, for retirees or whatever. So how would they create a great experience for your kids? Well, so, so first of all, you, you, uh, the minimum age is 13 years old. So it's not little, these are not little kids. Okay. I mean, my, my kids are 17, 21 and 25 just for perspective. So, um, but the, but the, the, there isn't a kid's agenda. I mean, these are, these are kids doing adult things, right? But you're, you're, um, snorkeling and swimming with sea lions and whale sharks and, um, hiking in the desert, um, and kayaking, uh, you know, open ocean kayaking and, um, you know, all, all of these kinds of things, uh, while you're also learning about the environment and the ecosystems and the animals and the plants and, all of those things from very, very knowledgeable, uh, lecturers and guides. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but it's not for everyone. I mean, this is not for everybody for sure. Um, but it's not like mm-hmm. there's a kid's, a kid's experience. Um, and frankly, my, my right. kids are of the age where they're, they're just going to show up and appreciate the premium open bar. If you catch my drift. <laughs> right. Okay. Um, what you, we, you mentioned before about the, the book that you've written and the, the book you're in the process of writing it's, now, well, I think it's it written. Was. It's public. It's going to be published in mid January of 2020. And so what is the aim for that book? Yeah. So, so this book is called creating a culture of accountability and it's a, it's a monograph, which is a term you and your listeners might not quite be familiar with, but think of a, mo- a monograph is a very short book on a single topic that goes deep, that has some tools attached to it. Mm-hmm. And the idea mm-hmm. here was that, um, I have yet to find a CEO uh, who does not need to talk about accountability inside their organization. Okay. Like this is a massive issue for everybody. Um, How do I get people to do the things they're supposed to do the way they're supposed to do them? And why is this always a struggle? And why do we always have to do this? Um, And so I decided to write the book and, um, and it's in a monograph form because my, uh, my coaching affiliation, my coaching organization, which is called Gravitas Impact, um, is actually going to be creating a library of monographs. Um, and they asked me to write the first one. And so that's what this one is going to be. And the idea here is it's, it's about, as a leader, what, what, is the, what is the structure, what are the rules, what are the behaviors, and what are the processes that we need to put in place in, in, in our organization so that we can dramatically improve accountability. Um, and, uh, and that's what this book is about. And the, you can read the entire book, depending on how quickly you read 60 to 90 minutes. Um, and it is very prescriptive to help a leader, uh, implement things that will improve the accountability in the organization. What, what are your general thoughts, um, around exceeding expectations, Mark? My general thoughts are that, I, I, well, I've already shared it, essentially. It's, I'm back to the model, Tony. I mean, my, my general thoughts mm-hmm. are, um, if you're going to talk about exceeding expectations uh, and you don't talk about how to do it on a sustainable basis, which, which requires non-heroic mm-hmm. activities, okay, uh, you've mm-hmm. got to go back to the model. You've got to go back to how you're structured, um, and you've got to get it baked in um, so that you are predisposing your customers through the customer journey that you've designed to be able to have extraordinary experiences. And, and actually, mm-hmm. if you, if you want, there's a book that I'm, uh, I'm currently reading from somebody who I just met. Um, 
that's a very, very powerful book in, in terms of helping a leader think this through and really design the customer experience um, in, in a way that it's scalable, mm-hmm. like I'm talking about from a model standpoint. Is that something? Mm-hmm. So the Almost book is, uh, is called Never Lose a Customer Again, written by Joey Coleman. He's a fantastic speaker and an amazing thinker. And he's got this process where you're, you're really mapping the customer's emotional journey um, and taking mm-hmm. a multi-channel approach to uh, creating an amazing experience for your customers. And um, while his book is about never lose a customer again, which is scarcity focused, um, it absolutely mm-hmm. fills what, what, what I'm calling the key criteria here of being able to build the model that's sustainable without needing mm-hmm. heroic efforts to exceed expectations on a regular mm-hmm. basis. Funny enough, that book is already on my Amazon wish list. I can't remember who it was that recommended it, but someone else recommended that. And I can't remember. So yeah, it is something I will be getting around to reading. Yeah, I met Joey and, and heard him speak uh, a month or two ago, and uh, he, he was fa- absolutely fantastic. Hmm. Well, if people want to find out more about you, Mark, where would they go to? So there's three places I'll point you to. Um, for those of you on social media, I'm quite active on LinkedIn, publishing content, and I'm at Coach Mark Green on LinkedIn, um, and it's the word Coach C O A C H M A R K G R E E N, just as one big word on LinkedIn. You can also get to me on the book website for Activators, which is activators.biz, uh, B-I-Z, and my uh, coaching site is performance-dynamics. Net, N-E-T. And that's how you can find me online. Well, Mark, it's been a real pleasure. Um, love some of the examples you gave about exceeding expectations. And uh, I hope you have a, a great day over there in uh, New Jersey. Hey, Tony, thank you so much for having me. And cheers to all your listeners. Next week, episode 70 is the first time we have a returning visitor. Alan Berg was on the podcast back in episode 15, which is just over a year ago. And Alan is a a marketing expert in the wedding industry. However, a lot of the advice he gives is really relevant to almost any industry. So even if you're not, you have nothing to do with weddings, I would still advise you to listen because he gives such great advice and tells some really good stories as well. So that's next week with Alan Berg. Hope you've enjoyed this week's show. Please do subscribe, leave a review for us, and it'd be great if you could share the episode. Hope you have a fantastic week.